2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. This is God's holy and infallible word. For I am already, <clears throat> this is Paul speaking. He wrote 2 Timothy. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which Lord, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Friends, there's a phenomenon we refer to as your life flashing before your eyes. You've probably heard of that, and, and maybe you've experienced it. It can happen right before an accident. It could happen when you're kind of stunned with some really intensely bad news. People who have near-death experiences often report having this. Pictures, images, flashes of memories, maybe all the way back to childhood. Sometimes, apart from the, these times like that, when our life flashes before our eyes, we, we think back on our life in a more deliberate way. Maybe you're just in a reflective mood. Maybe you're talking with your spouse. Uh, maybe you're, you're talking with your grandkids or your great-grandkids, and they're asking you about how it was way back when. I, I can attest that you can reflect on your life when you're facing a major surgery, when you're in that time of recovery from a surgery, um, maybe when you're undergoing testing and treatment. So those are times when our, our life flashes before our eyes. Well, Paul is facing death here, you might remember. We haven't talked about it a lot in these sermons, but I've mentioned it a few times. He's facing death as he writes 2 Timothy. He was imprisoned in Rome and was about to be put to death by these pagan empire leaders just because he was a Christian and because he was sharing the good news of Jesus. He's on death row. 2 Timothy, uh, this was the last inspired book that Paul wrote. And in some of these very last words that the apostle wrote, he's reviewing his life. Each of these three verses reveals something special and, and profound and, and, and something that, that you would want to have too as Paul talks about his present situation, as he looks to his past, and also as he looks for what's ahead for him. And, and as you consider your life as people of faith, these things are for you too, and they're for me. And first of all, we see that Paul has no regrets. Verse 7, our second verse, makes this clear as Paul talks about and reflects on his past. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And we've really got a, a sort of a, a fireworks of images and pictures here. With fought the good fight, 
uh, you can imagine Paul dressed as a good soldier of Christ, just as he described that in Ephesians 6. He's kept the full armor of God on until the end, that le- that the leather of that belt of truth. It's quite worn by now, but it's still firmly buckled around his waist and holding the armor all together. That shield of faith, though it is dented in many places, it's still at the ready for when the devil's arrows fly at him. The sword of the Spirit, it's dinged and it's scratched, but it's as powerful and it's effective as ever. From his Damascus Road conversion through three missionary journeys throughout the ancient world, we read about him in Acts, and his fourth journey, ending here in Rome and in prison, Paul has fought the good fight against false teachers, troublemakers, both in the church and outside the church. He's battled his own Jewish brothers who didn't accept Christ. He stood up against authorities in local towns and cities, provinces, and even imperial Rome. And he's also waged war against cosmic powers, this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. With that second picture, I have finished the race Paul gives us uh, the picture of a runner, a runner like he often has. God had designed a specific course for Paul. He was coming to the finish line. If it's true that, like they say, life is a marathon and not a sprint, then marathon runners among us, marathon runners among us, probably have the best idea of just What an accomplishment it is to finish the race of life. With kept the faith, Paul's talking about the good deposit that he's encouraged the church to be guarding. That deposit is the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we pass from generation to generation and to the whole world just as we've received it from people before us like a steward carefully guards and keeps something his boss entrusts to him. We do the same, church, with what's been passed down to us. This word, the news about Jesus, it's a precious treasure. We pass it on to our kids as we're reminded of in baptism today, and it's what we proclaim to our world. In chapter 2, Paul called Timothy a workman. And we talked about how we are all God's workers. Well, the pictures of a soldier, an athlete, the steward, they are pictures of people who are working hard. You and I are called to wear that armor of God, to be good soldiers of Christ, to be on guard, to fight hard against sin. We don't sleep at the post. Our life Is like a race course, too. It's unique for all of us, just like every cross-country course is unique. I did cross-country for one year in high school, and then I had enough. I couldn't hack it. But but I learned that every cross-country course is unique, and our life is, too. Sometimes we're on a hard path. Sometimes 
uh, dirt, sometimes bark trail, sometimes uphill, downhill, wide paths, narrow paths, sometimes through the woods, sometimes you're, you're out in the open. Hebrews 12.1 says that each one of us must run the race marked for us. I've got a race that includes particular things for me. One of those is a second brain surgery next month. You've got unique things in your course of life. You can't run my race. I can't run yours. Even as we encourage and support one another, each one of us, we're called to run with perseverance the race God has given us. Run the race God has given you. Stick with it. Keep pushing. There is a finish line. And we all, we must keep the faith. Pastors have a special calling But it's for the whole household of God. The deposit our master has entrusted to us, that treasure, the gospel, it's the answer to the world's problems because it gives the solution to peace with God, peace between peoples. What does the unfaithful steward do? He gets the treasure, but digs a hole in the backyard and hides it. But those who are faithful get the treasure and do something with it. We hold it out for all to see. We speak out the love of God in challenging times like today. We call out sin and evil. We cherish the faith. We're committed to it. And we build up the church with all our gifts, everything God has given us, to proclaim that faith and that treasure. No regrets. What, what could be more gratifying than looking back on your life and having no regrets about any of it? Paul's not arrogant about it. He, he doesn't go on and on. He's just sort of matter of fact. But you can tell he's confident about his past, isn't he? And that, that's pretty cool to have no regrets. You might think, ah, if, if only... Man, if only I could have no regrets and I think about my past. You might think, well, that's, that's great for you, Apostle Paul. <laughs> you're, you're the Apostle Paul. You did great things. We all can read about it. Of course, of course you had no regrets. But no regrets doesn't mean Paul was perfect. In Romans 7, he talks about his struggles with sin. When I, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. The evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Paul wasn't perfect. He was a sinner. He knew it. He struggled. He blew it sometimes. And you think, too, about all that time he spent living against God before Jesus met him on the Damascus Road and, and set him on a new path. He persecuted Christians, and yet... He has this confidence in verse 7 about his past. I want to tell you how he can do that and why it's so important for us to see how he can yet have no regrets. Paul talks in verse 6 about being poured out 
like a drink offering. Another one of those many images and pictures he gives us here at the end of the book. And being poured out like a drink offering, that's the language of sacrifice. On the Jewish altar, wine would be poured out. Dark red wine, and it'd spill out to the ground. Um, and, And that's a picture of his life poured out, given sacrificially for the Lord. Well, why in the world does he use to describe his life why does he use the language of sacrifice? And why does he call all of us to be living sacrifices in Romans 12? Well, it's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus did that. Jesus poured out his blood. Jesus gave his life. Jesus sacrificed himself for our sins, for our mistakes, for our past to erase it. Without Jesus, you've got reason for regret because for all of us, our past is ugly. We've got skeletons in the closet and we live our life today trying to do our best to make up for all those mistakes, but you just can't. You keep messing up more and you can never out, outweigh the sin you've done. But, but by trusting in the sacrifice of of Jesus, Paul knew his past was all taken care of. He truly could have no regrets, even though he did a lot of bad stuff, because that's what happens when you have Jesus. You're made clean. And, and, and we all of us can look at our past too, like Paul, in that way. We can look at our past and just as Paul does when you belong to Jesus. We can live with this clean and clear conscience knowing that Jesus paid it all. Second, and this is from what we read in the second half of verse 6. You can be always content for the present, for today, Whatever your situation, you can be content. And, and that, that's a hard thing to come by, contentment, because we always want more. We always want something different. You know, think of that. To be content, whichever candidate wins the election. To be content when things aren't going your way. To be content whatever your salary is. I mean, that's got to be the greatest gift anyone can have. Like, he leadeth me, that great hymn says, content whatever lot I see. Paul says in Philippians 4 that he learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, and we see it's true as he talks about his present situation here. He says, the time has come for my departure. This is another one of the fireworks of illustrations. This is the word departure that was used most often for a ship leaving, lifting anchor and going out to sea. Uh, a ship loosed from its moorings. And, and mooring uh, is, a, is nautical language for some whatever permanent structure that a boat is connected to, whether it's like an anchor or the shore or a dock. The time has come for my departure. 
And this picture is the Christian view of death. And it's, it's a beautiful one. Whereas anyone else would, would not have a beautiful view of death. But it's not something in, in, in the Christian view to be feared. It's not a terrible, fearful end to things. You know, going out on a boat in the water. That's contentment, huh? Going out on the lake. And surprisingly, that's how Paul describes death. C.S. Lewis, in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle describes death. It's not the exact same image, but it's with similar contentment and lack of fear. It's explained by Lewis as chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If you like to read, that sounds wonderful to be immersed in a book like that. I'm reading one like that right now, actually, that I'm really enjoying. But chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, it goes on forever. Departure. This is how the Christian thinks about death. You think of, of departure gates at an airport. You have arrivals, departures. Departure is the word. It's not the end, but it's the beginning of a journey. It's the beginning of an adventure. And if Paul, about to die, could see his current situation like that, he's going to die, you can see how he could be content always in every situation. And the key, again, is that language in the beginning of verse 6 where Paul talks about being poured out like a drink offering. The language of sacrifice. Because of Jesus' sacrifice first, those who belong to Jesus live sacrificial lives. Romans 12 urges us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. And everything he did, Paul gave back to the Lord, being a giving person, sacrificial. This was the key to being content in every circumstance. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. It's about others. It's about God's kingdom. Jesus, in his ultimate sacrifice, didn't think about himself, but he thought about the Father's will. He thought about all God's children he was laying his life down for. He thought about you, Paul knew that the Christian follows in Christ's example so that his whole life long, he saw himself as a drink offering, a sacrifice. Not just his life being poured out then, but his whole life was like that. His time, his efforts, his energies, any money he ever had, his intellect, his lips, his feet, his hands, all were being given for the Lord until the very end when the Lord would call him home as he was right then. This is how you can always be content when you see your life this way, sacrificially giving every area to the Lord and to those around you. In an election like we had this past week, as always, there are people 
happy with the outcome, and there are those who are not. But contentedness is not something that any outward circumstance can take away. I'm facing another surgery. This is not a circumstance I'm thrilled about. I'm a bit nervous about it. I'm disappointed. But yet, I can be content. This I can have. Jesus gave himself up for me, and in response, whatever talents, time, level of health I've got, I give back to him. And that's all we can do. That's all you are called to do. And whatever your present situation is, you can do that. You can do that. Finally, as we reflect on the future, verse 8, we can have certain victory. Paul's going to die, but he knows what's ahead and even beyond that. We're used to championship trophies when teams win or medals when individuals win sporting events. In the ancient world, in Rome and Greece, the winners received something that doesn't sound quite as exciting or great to us, but it was to them, a crown of oak leaves. So Paul is thinking about victory when he uses that picture of the word crown. That's what's in store for him. He doesn't talk about a crown of gold. He doesn't talk about a crown of peace. He doesn't talk about a crown of joy or glory. He talks about a crown of righteousness, which is interesting. Why why do you think that would be? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it's because righteousness, God's word tells us, is our very greatest need as human beings. Righteousness is to be made right with God and with others. Sin breaks all those relationships. Jesus, who is forever perfectly right and loving in how he related to the Father and to others, he died and he rose again to win righteousness for all who believe in him. Everything else, I want to talk about all the other great gifts of God, peace, joy, love, it only comes from that first. Because not having our own righteousness is our greatest need, and because it's the one thing we absolutely cannot do for ourselves, God did it for us in Jesus Christ. So the crown of righteousness is the ultimate award won by Jesus given to us. Paul's talking about the future when he meets Jesus. It doesn't mean when we belong to Jesus now, we don't have righteousness now. We do. But he means we'll have it perfectly and fully in glory. And Paul thinks of the whole church here, not just himself. Did you notice that? He will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Our faith is deeply personal. We have a personal assurance. We have a personal certainty of victory in Jesus. And each one of us, we're personally responsible to put our trust in Jesus. But our faith is not individualistic. 
We are on the road of faith together. We live in community, in, in beautiful community like we have here at Faith Church, supporting and caring with one another, inviting others warmly into the household of faith, and we'll experience the ultimate victory together too. We have victory because of Christ's victory. And this is a certain victory for, I want to say, much of the future we don't have certainty. I want to say I can't think of anything beyond this that we have certainty. And my, my prognosis after this surgery is very good, but I don't know for sure. The doctors think I should be good for a long time. I could maybe never have to have another surgery or treatments, but maybe I will. I just don't know. If you've had cancer, will it come back? Well, it's always in the back of your mind. You don't know. And of course, God could call any one of us home today, this afternoon, tomorrow. For political candidates, as Christians, we think, we discuss, we vote for the person that we think will best promote the values of the kingdom of God. But then, <laughs> we don't know how it's going to turn out. All we can do, what can you do more than vote and hope for the best? We don't know what to expect in the next four years. We pray for the very best. We hope, but we don't know. We really have no idea. But the Bible tells us that we can have certainty in this life. This victory is certain. You can face your tomorrow and live every day having certain victory in Jesus all the way to the day you receive that crown of righteousness and glory and are with Jesus and all God's people forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember again, I mentioned a few times how Paul begins our verses. The talk of being poured out like a drink offering, reminding us of sacrificial living, and we talk like that because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. There's a great church leader from a few generations ago, J. Gresham Machen, and he dictated these final words before his departure. His death to a friend. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without. In other words, I'm so thankful for the sacrifice of Christ. Friends, we, I've got great news for little Isaiah as the years go on for him and for each one of you. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when your life flashes before your eyes, when you reflect on it, you too, you can have no regrets, you can always be content, and you have certain victory. What a life we have. What a way to live. Amen.